Hello, and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and I'm here with Tim McIntosh and Heidi White. Angelina is, um, she's not joining us this week because she didn't join us for last week, so it just makes didn't make a lot of sense for her to come and answer questions about books she hadn't read. So um, I'm here with Heidi and Tim, and we are here to answer your questions about the glass menagerie, the glass menagerie. I can't get it out of my head. I can't decide which is right. <laughs> we're going to talk about it anyway. Heidi and Tim, how's it going? Great. Oh, it's so great. Yes. <laughs> should we should we spend this entire episode to develop a stand-up routine about doing laundry in a house full of children, or should we just skip that for now? I think it would be really successful. We should do it. <laughs> Tim can write a play about it. Exactly. It's a one-act yeah. play about doing laundry in your home. Yeah. We were talking before we started about the, the trials and tribulations of the, the pile of laundry that, that seems to be never-ending. And all the moms mm-hmm. who listen to this show are like, mm-hmm. hey, I'm doing laundry while I'm listening. Exactly. It's true. The dishes in the laundry, they never end, right? Mm-hmm. What I think would happen is the people who listen to this show would say, oh, finally, someone is addressing this painful, monotonous mm-hmm. subject in my life. I'm so eager to see this one act play and then they would see and they'd be and they'd say, oh, it's just as monotonous as it is in real life. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yep. Well, I don't know. It depends on how good of a storyteller you are, Tim. It's true. It's true. Kind of I, feel like right a, I feel like I feel like there's definitely a lot of things that like the characters would want in that play. There's a lot of <laughs> that would come that would come out of a one act play about doing laundry. Like a lot fabric of softener or like what? Yeah. What are you no, thinking? No, like the, the pile to go away. Right. Oh yeah. Right. Right. It would be like waiting for Godot. Exactly. Or the snows of Kilimanjaro, like the Hemingway story. Right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, well, we are here to uh, to answer listener questions, of course. Uh, before we do that, um, we've got some business to attend to. Uh, first, I'm going to say a quick word for our sponsors. I've, uh, I've talked about them on this show for the last few weeks. Uh, the Augustine College, our friends at Augustine College, have a new program in the U.S. So I guess it's just called Augustine College in the U.S. Their first class is coming up this fall. It's a one-year Christian classical liberal arts program nestled in the beautiful mountains of Blacksburg, Virginia. Normally, they are, I believe, in Montreal, but they've got this new program in Blacksburg, Virginia, um, which is near where Virginia Tech is also, if you're familiar with that, with that college. It's, it is, it's a really beautiful part of the country. They have some scholarships available. So if you are interested in uh, heading to this program or... Um, learning, you know, one of the big things for them they talk about is learning how to ask the right questions, which of course is a big part of close reads. And that's why I think the, the, the partnership, uh, the friendship makes sense. So, um, it is a once in a lifetime opportunity to be the first, um, you know, part of the first class of a program like this. And I think this is going to be a really successful class. So I hope you'll check it out. Um, it's going to be a successful program and that is truthisbeautiful.org is where you're going to want to get some more information on that. Or you can just Google Augustine College US if you want, but truthisbeautiful.org will take you right there. Um, Again, that's truthisbeautiful.org. And thanks to Augustine College for sponsoring Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. We are really grateful for all of our partners, but especially for them right now. And we wish them, of course, the best of luck as they're getting going with this new program. Starting something like that is not easy, um, as any of you who have started a school or even a co-op know, but then take that to an entirely different scale where you're dealing with multiple countries and borders and all the legal stuff that goes into that and then trying to get new students. And it's, it's a, it's an, it's a huge endeavor. And, um, you know, we wish them the best as they're doing that and, um, are happy to, to speak highly of them here on the, on the show. So I do hope you'll check them out at truthisbeautiful.org. Okay. Um, some more business. So, um, we're after this episode on the glass menagerie, we're going to go into a cycle as promised. Um, I talked about this 
back earlier in the year, um, we're going to go into a cycle of short stories. I'm calling it the short story unit as if it were in a classroom because I couldn't think of anything <laughs> else to call it. Um, so we're going to do six weeks on six American short stories. And my plan for that is to take, take you guys through sort of a, um, a overview of the American short story. So we're going to start, I know where we're going to start. Um, I don't know exactly which one we're going to end on yet, but we're going to start with one of the earliest examples of America of like truly independent, truly American literature. And that's Washington Irving's story, Rip Van Winkle. It's still one of the best short stories Mm -hmm. ever written. It's way more Mm -hmm. complicated than people give it credit for. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's in my opinion, the first example of a truly American voice coming out in literature. Like it's the birth of American literature, in my opinion. So um, we're going to talk about that. Um, A couple other ones we're going to talk about include Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, um, Mm. which is kind of a, that's a classic anthology one. If you took a, if you took a lit class or a short story class in college, you probably read it. But I think there's a lot more to it than most people give give it credit for. That was written in, I believe the fifties. We're Mm. also going to talk about William Faulkner's A Rose for Emily. Perfect, um, perfect short story. You know, I think it's, it's, he was like 22 when he wrote it. So I hate him for it, but it's amazing. <laughs> um, and um, it's just, it's one of the best ones to teach, in my opinion. I think we're also going to talk about Ambrose Bierce's The Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, which is a Civil War short story um, and kind of a mystery at the same time. Um, that's a great one from, I think the 1880s. I've got a couple other in mind. I'm trying to decide exactly which ones to do, but one of my goals is to look at the way the short story evolved, um, to be able to compare it to some of the other ones we've read to some of the other great short story writers like Flannery O'Connor, who we did a whole, we did a whole quote unquote unit on her. Um, but she's kind of an independent, even stylist, you know, craftsman, as far as how she wrote it, she's a master at it, but she did very different things than some of the other great short story writers did. So I want to look at mm-hmm. how the short story, which is a very, un- which is a very American form and the Americans have did it better than anybody. Um, mm-hmm. So I want to look at, you know, how that evolved, how it came to be the way the American sort of um, style changed, the way the approach changed and, and the way it developed. And um, in, in a lot of ways, I think the way it improved. So um, we're definitely going to have a good time with that. So this is where this segues me into um, sort of, I guess an announcement about the future of this show. So one of my, one of the things that I'm hoping for close reads and Tim and Heidi, you'll just have to bear with me for a minute as I kind of explain this and you, you can stop me and ask any questions that you think the audience might have. Um, and we, and I promise we'll get to the, the class menagerie. Um, one of the things that I wanted to do is be able to cover a wide variety of literature on the show and have it be as conversational as possible. Um, that's, sometimes difficult within the limitations of I'll just put it this way, just three people doing that Mm -hmm. or even four people doing that. The show, as we know it now has been going on for about three years. And as we've gone, it's evolved and we've taken different steps and tried all kinds of different literature, but now seems like the right time based on where we are in terms of listeners and all our different schedules and all the different things that we're doing here at Cersei to take that next step in the evolution of close reads. So this is the easiest way to put it. We're going to kind of take the close reads brand, if you will, this close reads podcast, and we're going to create what I'm for now calling the close reads podcast network. And so we're going to kind of evolve the things that we do on this show into multiple shows. So we'll still have a show that covers, you know, what, what you're hearing right now, like the contemporary 
novel, I guess is the best way to put it, contemporary literature. So, and I'm, I'm just thinking like 1700 and on it's the novel and the short story show is kind of what this show will continue to be. So you're not going to lose those sorts of episodes, those sorts of conversations about those sorts of books. We're also going to focus in on Shakespeare. So we're going to do a whole show that is dedicated just to Shakespeare. I'm so excited about that. We're going to read every single Shakespeare play. Are you serious, David? We're going to read every single one of them, one act at a time. So what we're probably going to do is we're either going to do a couple plays at a time and then take a few weeks off or or a month off or something. We'll do it in seasons. So I've got two ways of thinking about this. Each we'll do like, what are there, 30 plays? I'm just going to say there's 30 plays. 38. 38. 38. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let's just say we did, um, we divided that by three and did a season. Each season would be like history, a comedy, and a tragedy. I love yeah. it. I love this other. so much. And then, and, then take like, and then we take like a month or six weeks off and then come back and then do another cycle. Or we'll do something where we do one play, take a week or two off, come back and do another play. Um, it's going to be one of those two things. It kind of might have to evolve as we figure out the time. But I want to do... I think I do want to do the, the comedy history tragedy cycle or tragedy history... You know, For each cycle, we'll do one of those and then come back around. And the idea is that we just, we're going to talk about every Shakespeare play. We're going to do all 38 of them. So that's 38 times five. So that gives us like 160 weeks, you know, of, this is amazing. of content for, for all of you that are listening. So that's going to have its own feed. Um, it's going to have, what'll probably have to happen is, well, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to who's going to be on each show. Cause that's going to be a little more complicated than what you're used to. We're also going to do, and this is Tim and I are really excited about this one. We've talked about this quite a bit. Um, we're also going to do a show that some of you have been asking for, and that is essentially going to be a show on the essential films that have ever been made. Um, So we're going to do that in kind of eight or 10 episode cycles, seasons. So we're going to look at, um, you know, the the greatest films that have ever been made and why you should watch them. Um, Sometimes it's going to be Tim and I just discussing them, but I'm always going to try to bring on some film historian or some film critic to help give us some more context and give us some extra voice and insight to that, to that show. So everything from, you know, the ones you've heard of like Casablanca and Citizen Kane to some you might not have heard of. Um, And I don't want to give too much of that away now, but the films that are sort of the essential films, we get a, we've had a lot of conversation, a lot of questions asking me for something like this. Um, How do I, how do I watch films? What film should I watch? How do I do this with my kids? What is, what does conversation about film look like? Um, We're going to cover all those sorts of ideas on that show. Um, We're also going to try to do a monthly poetry show. So this will be kind of a, what we're calling, you know, we do this poetic knowledge panel at our conference every year. And we're going to do something that kind of approximates that where we're going to have two or three people on and we're going to discuss a specific poem at length. Um, that's, we're not gonna be able to do that every week, but we're going to do that probably about once a month. Um, it might have its own feed. We might just do that in the sort of regular close reads, proper feed, the, the close reads feed that you are already all are subscribed to. Um, those are the, f- the four essential shows that we're going to have on the close reads podcast network um, to start. And I've got lots of ideas if things go well of multiple other kinds of things we can do. Um, including David, some, that's exciting. Including some very so brief um, poetry, like oh, maybe maybe a daily poetry show, different, like maybe a poem of the day show. I've got a bunch, you know, well, there's things I'm working on seeing if they're even possible. Um, so David, is it, are they all going to be under the umbrella? I'm, I'm asking about kind of like the, the branding. Mm-hmm. Is it all under the umbrella of close reads or are they going to have different names? So the each show will have their own name, but then what you'll see okay. is, for example, um, 
you might say, so say one of the names that we're tossing around for the Shakespeare thing is the plays, the thing. And really there's no mm-hmm. podcast called yeah. that already. So, say, <laughs> so it'd be like, welcome to the plays, the thing, a podcast from the close reads podcast network cool. or welcome to whatever the movie show is called. I'm not going to give that away yet. A podcast mm-hmm. on the close reads podcast network. So the idea is they're all, it's like that idea of close reading. Like, what does that look like? But it's, mm-hmm. we're going to look at different disciplines and different art forms. Um, and we may, my goal is eventually to be able to even branch out into um, some things like painting and things like that, where every now and then we have a show where we're discussing a specific mm-hmm. painting with an, with an artist who's an expert. Um, and we can, you know, we can post that painting on the description or whatever. And then as we're talking about it or whoever's on is talking about it, then people can be looking at the painting and seeing the things that they're, that they're talking about on that episode. So there's a whole, there's a whole wide range of, you know, things that we want to do, but those are the four we're going to be doing now. Of course, um, right now, what you're used to is you're just used to Angelina, Tim, me, Heidi's been on and my dad's been on the past you're, That's what you're used to to make this work though. We're going to be having to introduce some new voices. We're going to having to be a little bit more flexible. So you're not necessarily just going to get the three of us all the time. Um, you're going to get, you're going to get, you know, you might hear Tim and I on some of the movie shows, or you might hear Angelina and I and somebody else. I mean, there's going to be, the point is there's going to be a little, we're going to mix it up a little bit more. We're going to have more guest people come in. You know, there's a, there's a number of, um, experts and writers and artists and who are, who are themselves creating these, these disciplines, um, or creating in these disciplines that, that I'm hopefully going to have on. And so it's going to, you're going to have to bear with us a little bit as you, as you adjust to that, it's going to be an adjustment for the listeners and we get that. But I think in the long run, what we're going to be able to do is create more content. Um, we want to create the kind of shows that you don't have to just listen to each week, like, and then once the week's over, you know, it's gone. We want to create a show that you can do that if you want, but it's also going to be a resource for you that when you're teaching the Tempest for your class, you can be like, oh, obviously Close Reads did that one. So even after we've done all the Shakespeare plays, you can go back to that one. Oh, um, yeah. Or, you know, if you want to, um, it's the kind of thing where you could teach along with what we're doing, or like there's just a wider variety of things, uh, of kinds of works that we're covering. So um, I think it's going to be awesome. I think we're going to be able to create amazing resources for you guys, lots of great content. But of course, that does mean you have to bear with us as as we as we adjust and as you adjust to maybe hearing some new voices and, and meeting some new people. But I'm confident that's going to be even better for you because there are so many wise people out there that we can talk to, that we can rely on. Um, it, you know, if you just are relying on Angelina, Tim. Heidi and I, then you're not getting the full gamut of all the wisdom that's out there. Let's just put it that way. So we want to be able to get you, get, get you listeners as much as, as, you know, give you as many wise voices talking about these amazing works of art as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, the show's never been like, it's never been the David Tim Angelina show. That's never been the intention of it. It's about the art. It's just about the kinds of questions we're asking and the discussions that are there. Um, and so we're just here to facilitate that. And there's other people that can do that as well or better than us. So we're trying to just, um, get as many different beautiful things in front of you, true, good and beautiful things in, in front of you as possible. And um, that's, you know, there's going to be a, several different voices that are going to help uh, help us do that. Of course, you'll still hear from each of us. Um, it, it just might not be in the same way at the same time with all of us, you know, the same way you're quite used to, but you'll still hear from us. Um, you'll still hear from, from us together. Sometimes it'll be, maybe be like what you're used to. Maybe sometimes it, you'll just maybe hear two of us with somebody else or whatever. It's, it's a puzzle. <laughs> we'll surprise you every week. The point is, it's be awesome conversations about awesome works of art. And we hope that you'll be listening along and subscribing to all the different shows. And David is a, is a short way of describing what we're doing. Is it, um, diversifying our portfolio? 
Is that what's going on? <laughs> you might you you might could put it that way if you wanted to. <laughs> and listen, another question: If we really, you know, want to be part of one of the discussions, say about one of the short stories or the Shakespeare play, are you open to any form of bribes? <laughs> I've, I I am always open to bribes. I have I um it depends on what they are, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But I I I'm certainly not I, it would be foolish of me to say no to that right off the bat. <laughs> <laughs> You're open minded. I mean, I am I am I am nothing if not open minded when it comes to being bribed to have whether about, about whether or not to have you on the show. Oh, that's hilarious. I'm Let's really excited say, you about could this. Make it season. worth my while. Yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, there's a lot of different people that you've heard from before on this show, I'll put it that way, or on the Cersei Podcast Network, even as guests and people we've interviewed that hopefully will be showing up as uh, semi-regular contributors. So you can still think of it like if you're if it's a sitcom, the four of us are still going to be the people that you're used to seeing all the time. But there's, then there's going to be people who showed up on the show, you know, six episodes a season. You know, they, sh- they showed up on Seinfeld right. every now and then. Um, they still had many storylines, many story arcs, um, mm-hmm. and you and those are characters yeah. you got to like as well. Sometimes those are the best characters. <laughs> so, um, sure. so anyway, that's that's that for now. So be on the lookout as those shows start coming out. I just wanted to give everyone a preview of what's coming up. Um, and um, like I said, be on the lookout. You'll be able to su- subscribe to some of those soon. And I'm really excited about this. I, I know that you know Tim, Angelina, Heidi. Um, a lot of people here are excited. And um, I, I, fingers crossed, but I think it's going to be, um, I think it's going to be pretty great. I think you guys as listeners are going to be um, pretty thrilled with the final outcome. So don't be nervous if it feels like it's going to be different. Um, it's going to be different in a good way, I think. Um, we've, we've done the same thing for three years. And, you know, after a while, um, part, of, part of it, I think, is that Tim and Angelina and, and I have, it's, it's a lot of work. There's a lot of like, doing the same thing for a long time. And it's nice to just mix things up and adjust and not have to put this, the same sort of demands on Angelina and Tim. That's something that's, you know, important to me to keep things fresh and to, to not like ask them to keep doing the same thing, you know, every week to having to just do the same thing over and over again. And I know that they've been really thrilled to be a part of the conversations, but still, um, you know, I, I want to make sure that it doesn't get stale uh, for the listeners or for the people who are participating. So I'm trying to stay ahead of that and also give you guys who are listening awesome content. So enough of this. Let's talk about the glass menagerie. Let's talk about that weird <laughs> unicorn thing. So um, <laughs> we asked for some questions and Tim posted the question, what's up with the unicorn thing? I think you actually said, what's the deal with the unicorn horn? So, hey, Tim, what's right. the deal with the unicorn horn? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a... Um... I think it's kind of like the unifying symbol of the play. And I think it Sweet. is. Let's go to the next question a- now. <laughs> <laughs> that was easy. Um, I think it kind of, it's, it, it represents um, Laura's state. I think that she, mm. I mean, like almost her interior spiritual state um, and something happens. So so just to kind of like refresh everybody's memory, um, Laura is the younger brother, the younger sister of Tom. Seems like there's something wrong with her. She's referred to as lame, but Amanda, the mother, doesn't like her to be referred, doesn't like for her to talk about herself that way. Um, 
but it seems like there's something else happening with Laura. It's not just that she's lame. Maybe she's really um, sheltered or maybe she's just afraid or it's kind of unclear. But I think what is clear is that both Tom and Amanda feel like they need to protect her and also kind of save her. And the biggest hope for saving her and the plot of the play is trying to introduce her to a gentleman caller, someone who might fall in love with her, who she might love, who might bring her out of her shell. Um, but we constantly see moments within the play where Laura is tending to this little glass menagerie. It's almost like a little glass zoo under lights. Mm. And the one, the animal that she prizes the most is this unicorn. And during the play, a gentleman caller does show up and the gentleman caller um, and her dancing, they bump up against um, the, the table, the desk where they put down the unicorn and it falls and it, and it breaks. Um, I took it to be that something shattered in Laura when that happened. And it was a kind of, um, I think what shattered was a hope that her mm -hmm. life was going to turn out in a way other than it seemed kind of predestined to go. Do you mean because mm -hmm. the, well, okay, let's talk about the image of a unicorn itself. Mm -hmm. Heidi, yeah. what do you make? I mean, he could have chosen, it could have been a glass like elephant or hippopotamus or like, you know, right. I don't know, a Mesopotamian statue of so, whatever. He chose a glass unicorn. So mm -hmm. why did he choose that? So things mean a, things, right? Absolutely. It's a, well, and throughout literary history and mythology and fairy tales and mm -hmm. medieval lore, a, a unicorn is a complicated symbol. Sometimes unicorn is very violent, um, uh, but always unicorns are associated with virgins in ancient literature and fairy tales and lore. So they will approach a young maiden with gentleness and defend her against aggressors. And so in that sense, I think we can all see how that kind of uh archetypal idea applies to laura right this unicorn is her favorite one she is the maiden the virgin this glass menagerie is protecting her right mm. uh the other thing about unicorns mm. is That's that they're not real they're and mm -hmm. they are i know right yeah i'm gonna have to break some seriously sad news to you small children <laughs> no, don't tell them. Don't let them listen to them. They are. They should believe in unicorns. But that's the idea, right? This she if if the unicorn is symbolic of her and her inner life, it's it's an illusion. And the glass menagerie is of course beautiful and yet very very fragile. Again, as Laura Yeah, I was thinking is. about that. It's interesting that there's something that's beautiful but fragile that is the thing that protects yes. her. Yes. It's you know, it's, and, you don't build a wall out of things that are fragile. Right. Exactly. On page 84, there's a significant line when he's, when Jim is inviting her to dance with him, the gentleman caller saying, why don't you stand up and dance? And of course it's the dance that ends up breaking the unicorn. Yeah. Uh, he, he says to her, I'm not made out of glass. 
And I think that's so significant that he, and I think that's right. Tennessee Williams puts that stage direction. He's a nice, ordinary young man. He's not really diabolical. He's not trying to break anything, but he Mm. isn't fragile Mm. and she is. And so he's going to break her. Now, when the, when the unicorn is broken, if you flip, if you're falling like him, flip your page to page 86, um, and she tries to comfort him. He apologizes to her. I'm so sorry I broke it. And she says, I'll just imagine he, the unicorn, had an operation. The horn was removed to make him feel less freakish. So she's trying to make the best of this situation. But as Tim points out, this moment is, at least in the play, the, the breaking of Laura. Right now, she, she wants to say that it's okay. I'm just a normal girl. And if he had closed the deal, let's say he actually does fall in love with her, he could have saved her in this moment Mm. and made her not of the fragile, broken unicorn anymore. But instead, he abandons her, then leaving her broken. So does the the menagerie and the unicorn uh, represent um, a desire on her part to be normal? And, or does mm-hmm. it represent, is it more representative of, I don't even, I don't know if it needs to represent anything sure. per se, but you know, or is it, um, more about, well, okay. I'll just ask that. Is that, is the idea that, that, that it's her, it represents her desire to be normal or is it meant to represent her inner life? I think that's a really good question. And I, I, I think that's a matter of interpretation. Again, the unicorn is always a complicated symbol. You can look at this as I read it as this is the decisive moment, right? If, Mm -hmm. if he had fallen in love with her, if there was no Becky in the picture and he really does come in and swoop in, then it's a good thing that the unicorn was broken because now she's not so she's not associated with the glass menagerie anymore. It's broken. It's gone. She was fragile. Now she's whole, right? Because this man has saved her. But instead, the next thing he does is tell her, oh, never mind. Like I, I actually am in love. I'm trying to do you some good by making you think you're pretty and kissing you and dancing with mm-hmm. you or whatever. So this, and again, he's not made out of glass. So he has no idea what he's in, what he's doing to her. So, so I did read it as an ambiguous symbol. It could have been a positive, but it ended with her fragile beauty shattered. That's how I read it. What did you guys, how did you guys read it? So, okay, Tim, do you think that in the end that she is, I mean, is she broken in the end like the unicorn or, and she's just trying to, she's going to have to just make the best of it or is there another way of reading it? I, I do think she's broken in the end and part of what in a bad, in, in a bad way, as opposed to like, yeah, in a, a bad broken, way, a broken, broken mm-hmm. warrior. So in the end, it's a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tra- oh, tragedy. I think this play is pure tragedy. Yeah. I think what's, I agree with Heidi. I think that the, the symbol is ambiguous. Um, and it's part of the reason it's yet at the same time, it's very potent. So it's not, um, so ambiguous is to lose its focus. It's really keying us into something essential that's happening in the play. And I, and I think what's really tragic is the gentleman caller cannot recognize how precious this thing mm-hmm. is to her. Yes. Um, 
and he has no acquaintance with how <laughs> he has a line. Um, let me see if I can find it. It'll only take me a second. Unicorns, aren't they extinct in the modern world? Hmm. You're like, Jim, what's wrong with you? Unicorns have never existed, you know? <laughs> yeah, I do um, love that line. <laughs> he, just, he just doesn't know the kind of woman that he's dealing with. And the tragic thing is Tom does. Tom knows the kind of woman that Laura is. Right. And Tom is not Tom is not gonna stay. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like So Tom is breaking purposefully, he he consciously, like willfully is abandoning her despite knowing what she's like. Whereas yes. the Jim yeah. is he's abandoning her, but he's at least trying to do the right, he's trying to be nice to her. Yeah. Nice yeah. He just doesn't know better, you know. <clears throat> and and I think if to to pick up on what Heidi was saying, let's imagine that Jim does. He falls in love with Laura. Let's imagine they get married. They have children. I think that even still, something would have broken in Laura. There's this mm-hmm. sort of um, innocent fragility that I mm-hmm. think would have been broken because she would be with a man that just didn't know who she was. Now, one could argue, you know, Laura needed to grow up and, you know, like join the real world and marrying mm-hmm. with Jim would have been a good thing. And okay, that's plausible. But I think there's also something terribly, terribly tragic that mm-hmm. Laura is one of a kind, like a unicorn. We don't see her yeah. in nature. You know, mm-hmm. she's not, um, oh, this makes me really emotional because I know people mm-hmm. like this. Um, my friend Ophelia is like this. She is absolutely one of a kind. Um, but life has been very hard. I just her. need to clarify. Are you referring to your friend Ophelia <laughs> like, as in the character from the play as a friend of yours? No, 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 no. I have, I have a friend in North Georgia and, um, mm-hmm. and her yeah, name is Ophelia. No yeah, her name is Ophelia. No relationship. No to relation the to Ophelia, daughter of Polonius. <laughs> no, I was gonna say no <laughs> relation to Polonius. <laughs> what about Laertes? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so I just wanted to clarify. I mean, I'm I'm okay with it if you talk about characters in books like they're your friends. I know. <laughs> I know. Tim, Tim is a unicorn. <laughs> yeah, right. I kind of like. I have like. I wasn't judging. I'm the one who's kind of like lost the grip between. Um, Timmy, you still there? Did we lose him? Uh, well, it looks like he's still here, but because I know that I, I noticed on the Facebook page, there was a lot of like concern that the play. I mean, it's a sad play. But There's okay, no, hey, not hey, hey you just ending. you just cut out for a second. Start that sentence over again. The play is a tragedy, and I think it might be valuable. I hope that we can kind of step back and talk about what tragedies do. Because I noticed some of the commentary on uh, the Facebook page was, wow, this is a very sad play. It's a very dark play. And it absolutely is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, there's a, it's a tragedy. And I kind of, I, I told Heidi off there, I really want to kind of come to the defense of, of the genre of tragedy because I not only have a particular affinity for it, mm-hmm. it um, it is something we should embrace tragedies. <laughs> I don't know any other so, way to say it. Like it is really important to embrace tragedies. I don't mean that you have to love them all, but mm-hmm. um, to at least kind of like 
be willing to welcome them in, I, I think is really, really important. Hmm. Um, do you think, so I was, I was thinking about why people respond sometimes, um, like they wonder why people like a tragedy like this. And I, and I always wonder if it's because when you're just reading the play, your experience with it is sometimes like a little incomplete. Like when you, when you watch a movie, that's a tragedy, you rare mm-hmm. people rarely, oh, well, maybe this isn't true, but, but people oftentimes will still like it, even if it's sad. Right. But mm-hmm. like when you're just reading the play, you're getting kind of an incomplete version. So the whole, you're not getting the whole, um, the whole vision of the story. You're not getting the, all the, all the themes laid out for you visually the way, like the way right. it's intended to be. And so it can feel um, like it can sometimes feel when you're just reading the play that the catharsis is sometimes lacking. Um, mm. Like there are not those moments there that help give, lacking, you some, yeah. give you some resolution. And I don't mean that in the end it's not sad. And so therefore you're sad, but like a tragedy, a sad tragedy can still, it should probably still, offer a sort of resolution within its narrative that at least makes the story feel complete. And sometimes if you're just reading a play, that is not, that doesn't always feel like it's there, even if it's there within the narrative structure. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little confused, David. Are you, are you saying, so it seems like there's two things happening. One of them is um, just the genre of, tragedy and i think that the glass menagerie fits squarely within kind of the tragic tradition then Mm -hmm. there's the other question of we're reading a play we're not watching it and right because we're not there fully experiencing the play we're not there's there are a lot of things that we Mm -hmm. don't see here i'm like there are lines for example see the actors sweating Exactly. And mm-hmm. there are lines, for example, that a playwright's going to put into a play that a novelist maybe wouldn't even put in because the point of the line is for it to be performed or for it to right. be lived out and incarnated on the stage yeah. for us. And so the truth that it's getting across is when you see it on the stage, it's a line of performance. And so just the words of it don't all yeah. come across the same way it does when it's in actually incarnated by the performance. Um, whereas mm-hmm. in a novel, you create those lines are created they're presented differently you know they're, they're, pre- sure. they're presented they, they the whole image is laid out for you in a unified whole within right. the course of the you know within the course of that passage or whatever yeah um, so just the experience is what we're getting right now just by reading this and it doesn't i don't mean that we shouldn't be doing that it's just it's it's only one it's only one portion of of this entire right thing that williams is creating right. here and so sometimes that can be a little disorienting i think particularly with a tragedy with a comedy at least at the end you're like okay, everybody's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're not like, you don't oh, feel I worried see, about I see, it. I see, yeah, here, I see. Yeah, I see. In the end, when everybody's not fine, at least mm-hmm. when you see the whole story, the whole thing, the whole way it's supposed to be presented and it's incarnated on the stage for you, you can still feel the resolution of the world that's been, cre- within the world that's been created on the stage. Mm-hmm. And sometimes right. that doesn't come across for every reader just in the words of the play. I'm kind of right. getting what I'm getting at is like a subtle difference here. I think that I'm having a hard time sort of expressing and I'm just, it's more of like, I'm wondering if that's why sometimes reading a, tra- a tragic play right. can be disorienting. Mm-hmm. I have right. no idea if what I'm actually talking about is true. Just want to say that again. Yeah. Yeah. Like almost everything I say on this show, I have no idea about whether it's true. I'm just wondering. No, I think that you're right about that. 
And this kind of modern tragedy is so different from, say, a Shakespearean tragedy mm-hmm. in which, say, at the end of Hamlet, the, the stage is littered with dead bodies and yet the kingdom is taken care of, right? To, so to your right. point, David, that's a little bit of what you're getting at, right? There's, there's, um, there's things that you can do in a sensory way that brings a level of resolution to a piece of performance that when you're leaving it just kind of, or when you're reading it, it just feels like you're getting cut off. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a performance, a play or, or even a film, which we never, you know, unless you're really into writing screenplays or something, you almost never read a screenplay, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which I think will change in the next 50 years or so. <laughs> but, um, but the, you know, a performance is the incarnation of mm-hmm. like of language, right? I mean, language in right. itself is incarnational, but you're taking, you know, Right. Um, you're taking ideas that are presented in the subtlest of lines and you're incarnating mm-hmm. them in a way that offers meaning, that, that provides additional meaning to those words. It's not just context. It's not just entertainment. You're incarnating the truth of the, the words. You're incarnating right. the subtlety of the line. Mm-hmm. And that's, that, that, I don't think that's a small thing. Like the idea of me as, as an actor or Tim as an actor or whatever, or whoever the st- whoever's doing lighting or costuming or right. or stage um, design. That design, like yeah. You are incarnating subtlety when you do that. I mean, yes. you're also incarnating obvious things. But the most important thing you're doing is you're incar- incarnating subtleties. Mm-hmm. You're making them experiential. And right. that's the brilliant thing about theater and film to me um, that, that, that makes it unique in a way that no other art forms do. I mean, other art forms deal in subtleties as well. But like right. the, you're you are incarnating subtleties through the human body in theater, right? Um, right through through it, you know, like um, interpersonal physical interaction, um, th- and through like the use of multiple senses um, in a way mm-hmm. that I think is really fa- is really um, unique and fascinating. And like um, the greatest performers can add additional layers of subtlety to it. The amazing directors the amazing cinematographers or what stage direct, whatever it is like the blocking or the way, whatever it is that the greatest add that additional layer of subtlety that goes beyond that first layer of subtlety. And I think that's mm-hmm. why we stand in awe of them because we're like, they're getting at something truly yeah. transcendent there. Right. And we stand, we just kind of stand there with our mouths open. Right. And we can barely breathe for a minute because what right. they're doing is it's so, it's so moving because it goes beyond what you understand at first. And it takes you, takes you um like into another plane of existence almost um and that's well anyway i've just got into a diatribe about why theater mm-hmm. and film is awesome but i think that that gets that's still to my point i, I think it illustrates my point about what i'm trying to trying to say here um, right. David, can i try to um kind of back you up here you probably the, should because the... i didn't say anything there i just went on <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did yeah you did you said you said no, plenty I thought of good that was stuff. lovely yeah on page 96 um the closing monologue from Tom begins at the bottom mm. of page 20, uh, 96, in which he says, um, I didn't go to the moon. I went much farther. For time is the longest distance between two places. And he tells us, the audience, that he left the house. Okay, mm-hmm. now why this, and it's a beautiful monologue. But mm-hmm. while the monologue is happening, something is happening simultaneously. But on the page, the thing that is happening simultaneously in stage directions happens before Tom says his speech. So 
on a stage, we could see what's happening in the background. And I'm going to read some of that. Tom's closing speech is timed with what is happening inside the house. We see as though through soundproof glass that Amanda appears to be making a comforting speech to Laura, who is huddled on upon the sofa. Now that we cannot hear the mother's speech, her silliness is gone, and she has dignity and a tragic beauty. Laura's hair hides her face until, at the end of the speech, she lifts her head to smile at her mother, skipping forward a little bit. At the close of Tom's speech, Laura blows out candles, ending the play. So that's what we're seeing when Tom is giving his speech. And I, I don't think, I at least cannot replicate that in my mind. I cannot read Tom's speech while at the same time imagining what is happening inside the house. Yet, if I were sitting in the audience watching that, mm-hmm. both would be happening at the same time. And there is something about that experience mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that you cannot replicate on the page. You can only replicate it on, for me, <laughs> you, you can replicate it on film, but something different happens when you're actually, your body is in the same room as the bodies of the actors. Yeah, something and, different yeah, happens. They're, they're unique things. They, yeah, they do think they do this. They do what I was describing in different ways. Yeah. I, I don't want to say that they're the same thing. Cause I, I don't, I don't want to diminish like either one of those things. I, I want the difference is the uniqueness of each of those things. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Right. What I heard from some of those questions on the Facebook page, though, is this story just made me so sad. Mm-hmm. What What is the point? So mm-hmm. to go back to your defense of tragedy, Tim, what would you say to those people? <laughs> you put that on a T for me. I really yeah. appreciate that, Heidi. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. So You're let's welcome. see if we can. Let's see if mm-hmm. I can find. Um, let's see if I can find an exact example there. Um, Hey, we had a lot of well, questions. Sure, because to go back to my earlier comparison to Shakespearean tragedy, mm-hmm. there's there's less of an emotional connection for a lot of people to something like Macbeth, right? We're never going to have the opportunity to kill the king in our house and right. steal the throne. And so the tragedy feels in many ways, even though the scale is much bigger and the stakes are much higher, it feels less tragic to us to read about the follies and the failures of a king versus the the disintegration of a family yeah i f- i found a question that i think phrases it fairly with a with a follow up mm-hmm. question by someone else that i think can can help uh, us dig a little deeper here so i don't mean to do you, do you want to follow up on what you were just saying no no i want to hear i want to hear what i want to hear okay. the question so Paige asked, I'd like to know why our hosts or anyone likes this story. I get that the style is interesting, but the content of the story is depressing. Why did Tennessee Williams tell the story? What's the point here? Uh, she talks about the first sentence of the of scene one being a tad heavy-handed, and we talked about how he kind of is in some ways. And then Joan uh, says... Yes, um, having let's see, I'm more than willing to assume that I'm the one in need of schooling. In need of schooling, Tennessee Williams must be trying to tell us something, and that can tell us something that can lead to the true good and the beautiful somehow. But I'm at a loss. So I feel like that's a fair bit of additional context there. Like, yes, this is it's sort of depressing. So why do we like this? And what is it about this depressing tale that can lead us to the true good and the beautiful somehow? Mm-hmm. I think that will lead us into some other questions too, as well. So uh, those are, I think, there's two fair ways of approaching the question right there that that were brought up. Tim, 
I, I, I mean, I think, I think this play is so heartbreakingly beautiful and um, it's heartbreakingly beautiful because it's true. This story plays out, not with these specific characters, but this story plays out over and over and over again in everybody's life. We don't have like, I didn't have a sister like Laura who was protecting this glass menagerie, but I do have, my family has, because we're like every single family, kind of ideals and hopes for each other. And when those ideals and hopes are not met, it is crushing. It's absolutely crushing. And I think what Williams has done is he has, he has put so much power into the character of, I think, specifically Laura. Um, there's so much hope that we want to just nourish this young woman and take care of her. But it's just built on, um, her life is built on something that is exceptionally fragile. And we watch this ideal get crushed right before our eyes. And now we have to imagine what the aftermath is going to be. The aftermath is going to be Tom is going to leave. Laura and Amanda are going to be in this home alone. Who knows how they're going to be able to pay for their lives? Who knows what's going to happen with Laura long-term? So I see the tragedy of it is, <laughs> it's like I'm trying to articulate my like very guts because I believe so strongly in the power of tragedy that we have an opportunity to live through a tragedy. And by doing so, we can be a little bit less scared of it by doing so, we can admit that we too live out this little story in a different way. Um, that we too are subject to kind of like the failures of Tom and the failures of Amanda, that we do all these things. Um, and so I, for me, that's why I said at the beginning of the show, it's so important to kind of, even if you don't like it, to be able to kind of like embrace it, not just as a moral tale, but as just, mm -hmm. This is real life, highly condensed, highly charged, highly like emotionally just packed. And it, maybe we might should edit what I'm about to say out, David. But sometimes I feel like if you can't, I'm not accept, editing something out if you said it ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes I feel like if you can't accept tragedy, I wonder if your friends will not come to you when their husband is cheating. Hmm. or when hmm. a friend is an alcoholic. I sometimes wonder if they will not be inclined to come to you if you can't understand just how hard hmm. and tragic this life can be. Hmm. Well, and to answer that question from a different perspective, because I, along with Tim, believe passionately in the power of tragedy, the closer to our hearts, the harder it hits us, the better um, in a well-constructed story. I, I think in, in the classical education world, and I think our listeners have probably heard of this word before, we talk a lot about the concept of mimesis, which means imitation, that you read for the goal of mimesis. 
so you you read good, true, beautiful things so that then you will become what you behold and encounter the world fortified with this, uh, with those the three transcendentals, right? And then thus get to know God better. And I I, I passionately believe in that. That's how I educate in our home and at our school. But I also think modern literature tends to not be very good at my nieces. If that's your goal for reading literature, it's going to be hard to read modern literature. Um, so in many ways, we need a new goal when it comes to things like modern tragedy specifically, which we have before us with the glass menagerie. So we have another one. And I would say that this comes, um, uh, the word that I would use to describe then the goal of why I would read something like the glass and menagerie is something very close to my heart. And that's the concept of naming things, telling mm. the truth about them. And this is exactly Tim, what you are saying mm. uh, that modern literature, and especially for us, because we are still in this age, right? So we know what it's like to, watch families disintegrate all around us, maybe even in our own homes, it hits us really hard, much mm -hmm. differently than a Renaissance tragedy or an Elizabethan tragedy or a classical mm. tragedy, yeah. right? We yeah. feel it differently because this is, as Tim said, yeah. our experience and the experience of people we love. So, but modern literature names that really well, tells the truth about that experience, social issues, uh, the universal human condition, uh, lies we might believe, consequences of our actions, even our own culture's place in the narrative of history, which hits close to home. So when we have that sadness that we experience, when we have that visceral reaction to a story, uh, we can fill in the gaps then for someone like Tennessee Williams, who's obviously making a statement about our faith as well in a negative sense. So what can we possibly gain from that, right? But that names something that's happening in the world, something that our faith has an answer to, a, a remedy for, a recovery. Uh, and we as Christians can fill in the gaps with our moral imagination, which mm -hmm. goes back to that concept of mimesis. So, um, but I don't think we need to be cautious. I think we lean in and we let it hit us and we feel it. And if you don't like the way you feel when you read it, you're actually reading it right. Right, you're supposed to feel that because it yeah. names the fragmentation, the despair, homelessness, and dissolution that's happening all around us every day, which then creates compassion and a redemptive response within us. And I think that's why we need to read things like this, even if we don't like it. And there's my air quotes, my invisible air quotes again. <laughs> so that would be them. my passionate defense. <laughs> <laughs> For me also, Heidi, I, I, I sometimes wonder if there is a kind of um, symmetry of proportion between our mm -hmm. ability to understand tragedy and our ability to understand the height of the redemption that we long for. Absolutely. Of course you know? it does. Yes. Yes, I mean the story of the world. It, the, the story of of the universe has the five parts, right? The creation, fall, incarnation, redemption, and restoration. That's the story that the human soul is always longing for. And a lot of modern literature tells the story of the fall. Now, I 
And I think even though it doesn't tell the whole story, it's those things still tell the true story. Mm -hmm. And that is to your point of if we can enter into this tragic experience, as Aristotle would say, the catharsis of pity and fear, right? We, we mm -hmm. enter into this with these characters. And even if we live very happy lives or very sad lives or wherever the trajectory of our life takes us, then we can better approach the cross because we're naming the fall. Mm -hmm. And that prepares us for it, even if it's not our own personal experience, even if we're just entering into it with compassion. Right, right. I think you have, well, I hope, I think you can address this. I, we don't have a lot of time left. We've been going for a long sure. time already. And I want to cover mm -hmm. at least a couple more of these questions. Um, there's two questions in particular that I think we should cover. So I want to, I want to move on. Um, and, I, and I, again, I hope that people who felt that way, at least that was at least helpful. I think it will be. Okay. Um, Aaron asks, in the play's notes, Williams describes it as set up to be a memory. Uh, she said, I think that's partly why the screen images are used. So how does that affect the play's overall purpose and the specific interactions between the characters? I assume it's meant to be Tom's memory. Does that influence how each character is portrayed? Is this his confession? Hmm. Tim, do you have any thoughts on the memory conceit? I love the question. I do think it's his confession. Mm -hmm. um, I think the framing of the play as a memory um, for me, the way that that shows up the clearest is probably through the staging. We mentioned last week, it's um, plastic theater. There are, there are um, I get the impression by reading the liner notes that this is a play that is meant to feel somewhat dreamlike. However, the action of the play is painfully realistic. So I don't want to say um, that because it's a memory, it's an escape from realism. I think it's it's almost like the only way that you can kind of tolerate this much reality is by having it a little bit softened by <clears throat> some of the stage settings, um, some of the beauty of Tom's um, monologues, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. To piggyback on that question, David, I think there was someone else also asked if we should doubt the veracity of what's mm -hmm. being reported to us since it's Tom's memory. I wonder what you guys thought about that one. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I think that's what makes memory plays so fun, too. I think, was it Paige's question or Aaron's? I, I, I love memory plays. I love stories about memory because it is memory that makes us who we are. So when, but we don't know if what we're remembering is true, is correct. Yeah. I, like I'm, I'm willing to bet the farm that what I remember about my childhood is true, but because I remember it, but right. there's a high chance it's not, or there's filtered mm -hmm. through my own experiences. Or we since think the then. memories I, are true, but they're not actually true. Like we're convinced of them. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like, you know what they say in, um, you know, whenever, they're doing some kind of investigation. I always say that the eyewitness accounts are unreliable. That's true here in memory to plays listen. too. You have to go listen to uh, Malcolm Gladwell's recent podcast episode where he talks about that. He does a whole thing on this. On the unreliable like, narrator. Well, on, on how our own memories often huh. over time will evolve and like we're convinced that something's true. 
And yeah. like, so they'll, they'll interview somebody who saw something happened a month after it happened or like the day it happened or a month. And then again, a month after it happened and then a year after it happened and then two years after it happened. And a year after it happened, when they interviewed them and asked them what happened, people are so convinced that what they remember is true. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they'll say the same thing two years. And then at two years, they'll be so convinced that something is true. And then you'll show them what they wrote the day that it happened or the day after it happened. And they'll say things like, oh, I don't know why I would have written that. That's not at all how it was. But, uh, have, but they wrote it. <laughs> and so they're so uh, convinced that the way you remember it is the way it actually happened. And it almost never is. Right. Um, like there's no examples but virtually of it being exactly the way it actually was. Um, mm. Which and it's like, that's sort of the good is that's a good thing. And a bad thing is one of the sure. things. Yeah. Well, and it can be frustrating it. for readers uh, who, who want to know this, but the whole, I mean, the glass menagerie actually just didn't happen. Like it's not true at all. It's just a story. So yeah. they, if you add another level, then of we are, we as the audience are under no obligation to believe anything Tom says, but this is the story we have. So what do we make of it? And I think, I think that's exciting. I think that's interesting as you read a story, although I can understand to some readers, that's probably frustrating too. They just want to know what's the truth about the mom, right? Yeah. What's the, yeah. what happened to Laura? Like what happened after the play is over. So that, I mean, I think those are really, that shows in a level of emotional interaction with the story that is really exciting and fun, but also we, we just don't know and we can't know. And I, I think that's great. I like that. Yeah. I mean, there's do, you got, do you guys doubt what, do you guys think that Tom is deliberately at any point in the play misreporting consciously mm-hmm. misreporting? Well, those are two different so, questions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, two I guess different not, questions. Yeah. I mean, is he deliberately doing it? Is he consciously doing it or is he, forgetting things like is he conscious right well and you said you read it as a confession i was reading it as a defense this is Mm. why i left look my mom was so awful so this is why i left and i realized it cost my sister her whatever her sanity her Mm -hmm. happiness but i had to leave that's how i read it you read it as a confession which again shows how a memory play can hit readers in two different ways yeah i think that amanda is a good example of this because i think that one of the geniuses of the of that character is that you can you can read her in a way Mm -hmm. that that gives credence to his or if you want to read it as if he's defending himself you can read amanda in that way mm-hmm. that she's this terrible we'll just say terrible i know that's like an oversimplistic way of putting it but that she's this terrible character right. who has been causing him emotional trauma his whole life and all that and he has to get away from her and so you can read it that way and you can understand it um but you can also read it in a way that is less sympathetic to him and more sympathetic to her mm-hmm. and like those are you know that's that those that sort of paradoxical nature of of his character and of her character is sort of why i think the play lasts has lasted so Mm -hmm. long um and why people go back to it and want to keep performing it because um I i think that when you're talking about a memory play if you are reading it and you are if you're reading a memory play and you are assuming that your narrator is telling the truth Mm -hmm. then that's foolish Um, that doesn't mean that he's not telling the truth, but I think that the playwright is inviting you to test right. everything he says. Like that's the nature of the form. 
right. he's inviting you to question everything that they, that the character says. Yeah. Right. Always remembering. Which to um, take that. So my master's is in counseling. So I did, I've done a lot of counseling in my life as well. And that is essential, essential to helping people is to assume this person may not be telling the truth, but they're still trying to tell me how it felt to them. And hmm. so that That's is why we what should is stop true talking to about them. my truth. Yes, exactly. I'm just trying to say my truth. Yes. Right. Stop trying to say but your that, truth. Stop trying to figure right. out the truth. So it's not helpful in a counseling situation for me to sit with somebody and try to get them to tell me what really happened with their mom. Right. What's important is that I, that I hear them and I believe that's how it felt. And I deal with that. And that's what we take then to a play like this as well. So you have to be a count. You're like a, you're like a counselor when you read a play like this. I mean, I do tend to read very psychologically. So, which is only one way to read, but it is one of the ways I read. So. Um, uh, why do you think this play is such a popular choice for high school classes, Tim? Um, it's great. <laughs> it's just brilliant. <laughs> um, it has everything that a play that we want from a play. It's, um, it's architecturally, I think it's sublime. I, I mean, I just don't know. I, I, I think of what makes the psychology of plays, really great plays so powerful is that there's this kind of silent architecture that you never look at when you're first reading it or when you're experiencing it. But if it's not there, you walk out of the play and it's just not very satisfying. Mm. Um, I've talked before about Ibsen and like the greatest probably playwright of the 19th century and a friend of his were walking down the road. They see a building that's under construction and his friend makes a comment about the architect of the building. And Ibsen says, that's what I am. I'm an architect. Mm -hmm. And I think that part of what makes the glass menagerie so powerful is that it is the, the architecture is so good and you mm. never even pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. And so it just allows us the freedom to step into these characters and really fully experience and feel how they feel. And we're just being carried along in this arc, carried along in this structure. And we know there has to be a crisis. It must be resolved. And mm -hmm. something is going to happen to Laura and something's going to happen to Tom. And something's going to happen to Amanda and it's going to be irrevocable. Mm -hmm. So that's not, that's a, that was more just me praising the play. Um, you guys might do a better job of explaining why this is popular for high, as a high school reader. Well, I, I think I agree with everything you just said. I also think it's still, in spite of all of its genius of construction, which I heartily agree with, it's still fairly accessible. You yeah. could read this play at 16 and be able to see if you're looking for it you can see the structural elements the formal elements the dialogue elements the symbolism the, the theme all of those things at um so you're encountering accessible genius in this play which mm -hmm. i think is great for high school students to encounter as they learn to develop their vocabulary and understanding of great art hmm. tim okay um gonna ask this is your last question tim okay Okay. 
Sarah mentions that she's read Shakespeare plays, so the intense stage directions were foreign to her. What's the purpose and the pros and cons um, to such little stage directions as in Shakespeare versus very detailed ones as in um, as in this and m- as in almost every other play? Yeah. The saying among actors is that there's no subtext in Shakespeare, mm. that he gives you everything. Mm-hmm. And that's an exaggeration. I mean, actors that say that know that they're exaggerating because there's there's definitely subtext. But um, to go back to Heidi's from a performance perspective, Macbeth, from a performance mm-hmm. perspective, um, why does Macbeth kill the king? Mm-hmm. It's not in the subtext. He right. comes right out and says it. I have no spur to prick my intention, but so, or soliloquies do the trick. Right. Yeah, he yep. he just says it. Yep. Yeah, um, or leaping ambition. Yes. Right. Like there it is. And then he goes and he kills the king. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. there it is. It's, it's really simple. I mean, it's Which obviously some- highly complex, but mm-hmm. yeah. I right. think that the stage directions are uh, help the actors and the director see the subtext. And thus, mm-hmm. accordingly, the audience will arrive at that subtext also. Now, this plays a little bit different in two ways. Um, it's very, there are lots of stage directions. So this is atypical. If you picked up a play from any time in the 2000s, what's in vogue now is hardly any stage directions. And if you do get a stage direction, they're very, very important. Mm-hmm. Even 100 years ago, to talk about Ibsen again, Ibsen would give stage directions that were very, very long, and they're kind of laborious to read. That's this does read a bit more now. like a screenplay in some ways. Mm-hmm. It does, yeah. doesn't it? It does. So I, I think the stage directions are there to help establish, there to help us see emotionally what's going on, even if the playwright doesn't state it overtly. The, oh, sorry. The other exception, I think, the other way in which this play is different is that the Tom's monologues monologues spoken directly to the audience they still happen but they're a little bit less they're not as common in any way as during shakespeare's day mm-hmm. uh one thing that strikes me about that is just that i think that sort of flexibility that well that the way shakespeare does it lends it sort of a timelessness if that's a good sense in a good way i mean there's i, I mean that in the sense that you people can perform his plays in almost any century like you could stage, mm-hmm. you could yeah. make it. In other words, you could make it take place now, almost all of his mm-hmm. plays. Mm-hmm. A play like this takes place in a very specific time and place. Mm-hmm. Um, you could still make it take place now, but like it, it's, 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 um, it's placing it, if that makes yes. sense. Yes. The stage yes. directions are giving, it, are giving it a much more specific context. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tom's opening monologue gives it a very specific context also. Yeah. Right, right. And that's for better or worse. I'm not, I'm not, that's not a judgment yeah. statement. It's just a observation i suppose okay mm-hmm. um one last question for heidi and then we're gonna go um let's see here where to go where to go <laughs> this is super good radio um <laughs> i don't know what's why the theme of the question radio. david um <laughs> okay here we go um, we're not gonna be able to discuss this much, but mm-hmm. we, we, well, we already have talked about it a little bit. Um, 
there were a couple of questions about, is there like a specific lesson that William mm -hmm. was trying to get across? So one mm -hmm. person said, Linnea, Linnea said, my daughter got that men aren't trustworthy and will leave you from her cursory watching of a movie version. I don't think the point, that's the point, but the girls seem so helpless. It was sad face emoji. I get the illusion motif that y'all brought up. There was also something with a unicorn, which we'll ask for us mm -hmm. to talk about that. Um, but is there, is Williams like trying to get, is, is there a specific lesson or moral, I guess, hmm. that Williams is trying to get across? And we could have talked about that for a long time, but um, sure. I'll let you have, you have 20 seconds. <laughs> uh, I think with any kind of modern literature, uh, readers have to be very careful in looking for morals. Um, there's, there may be something that the author is trying to get across or some kind of ethos of the age, something like that. Like we talked, we talked quite a bit about the fragmentation, the fatherlessness, the homelessness that was addressed by Wendell Berry and Glass Menagerie in very different ways of the 20th century. Uh, but especially for someone as modern. And I mean that in the uh, actual genre sense of modern, not just as an adjective, but modern with capital M. Modern authors are very rarely trying to make a point that has any kind of moral cohesion to it. So mm -hmm. we may be able to extract something like men are untrustworthy, but that's probably not what he's trying to say. And for Christians specifically, we have to be relying on our own moral imaginations of what we know to be true instead of trying to figure out what the author might be trying to say here. So I would which, say no. Yeah. Which, which is why the best way to prepare young people to read um, mm -hmm. complicated contemporary literature is to mm -hmm. have them read things like fairy tales where there are morals, exactly. but they're also the stories are, you know. Yes. And that's also, which that's also why, in my opinion, you don't tell the kid what the moral is. That's because exactly right. If, if yes. they have a chance, you read a story like Snow White or something or Hansel and Gretel mm -hmm. and, and they, when they read that and they wrestle with it and their moral imagination wrestles with it, even in their subconscious as you're reading it a couple times to them and over the years, they learn to wrestle with complex ideas yes. um, deep in their yes. inner person, deep in their soul. But they deal right. with that in a, in, with a story that is less likely to be harmful to them. And so then yes. they've prepared to do that. And then when they read contemporary fiction, which, as you said, is less likely to be trying to participate or present some kind of like cohesive moral lesson, mm -hmm. um, then they can, they're wrestling with the, they can, they can, they've practiced wrestling right. with the ideas that are nestled into that story. Um, great right. artists are with less, less, I believe that great artists spend less time trying to get a point across than they do trying to create a vision of the world. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you mm -hmm. know, the greatest artists create a cohesive vision of the world. Right. And, well, you know, and I love this play. And Tim, exactly. Tim loves this play. And we all three love this play. And yet we do not buy into Tennessee Williams' vision of the world. Yeah. And the reason is because we do have a well-nourished moral imagination, which is the job Probably. of parents for their kids. Kids should, I, I would recommend against kids reading modern literature, um, but they should absolutely be reading fairy tales, Bible stories, mythology, those kinds of things that nourish that moral imagination that help us to fill in the gaps when we encounter stories like this. So, but you mentioned that we don't necessarily buy into the vision of the world that mm -hmm. he, he he necessarily believes in. But what we do is we've learned to recognize, you know, there's truth 
the well i would say would you would you say it's fair to say that we don't necessarily buy into the conclusions that he draws right about that yes. about his yes. Vision of the world yes and when i say world things. i yes i was we, thinking i do buy what he's saying about the modern about the 20th century i think he's naming something really important but i right. don't but it, it isn't the truth about yes yeah. the, it isn't the christian vision of the world that's true but that doesn't threaten us as readers because we do know the truth, right? We're, we're able to say, oh, he's naming something important that I have to acknowledge is real. But I also have... That's why I... Th- sorry, universal it, truth. It, yeah. Sorry, it, it, yeah. it froze there for a second on me. Yeah. That's why I think it's important to read someone like a Hemingway or even a Kim mm-hmm. or something like that. Because they're naming the vision yes. of the world that was that is informing the world we live in. Absolutely. Uh, and so they're, they're what their interpretation of what it means about how we should live in the world or what we should take away from that, you know, vision of the world is um, not necessarily, you know, doesn't necessarily agree with our quote unquote worldview, but Mm -hmm. that, but the naming, participating in the naming of it allows us to interact with it and have conversations with it and understand what it is that we're living in. And then, and then in doing that, it allows us to have a sense of, what the Christian's role is in that world, because we can't know yes. that part of it. Like we can't understand how we should be living in that world or living. Well, I'll just say living in that world mm-hmm. until the condition of that world has been named. And I, and I identif- yes. identified it. Exactly. Name. And so right. these great authors, they identify and they name it. They may have the, the wrong conclusion about what that means for how we should live. But mm-hmm. the, what he's naming and what Wendell Berry's naming, what Camus and Hemingway are naming and what Fitzgerald are naming. And then what Flannery O'Connor and C.S. Lewis and Walker Percy are, are identifying and naming are consistent with one another for the most part. Yes. What they're, what's coming, mm-hmm. what's coming out of that that's different is their interpretation of how we should respond to that and live in that. Um, right. And so it's our job once we've identified that and named that or learned to do that and participated in that by reading great, participating in the existence of great art, then we can start identifying what does that mean for how I as a Christian should be a part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And so you know, the great ones that last are the ones that participate mm-hmm. in that naming in a way that is true. Right. Um, if they haven't named something, if they've named something falsely, it almost always falls away. Yes. Yeah. I think. I, and now we're getting into some pretty deep subtleties again. Deep here, waters, but yeah. it's true. Yes. Well, and those are the questions that literature opens up for us. I, I think the, the question on the Facebook page is very relevant. Why? Why do Christians read things that make us depressed? That's, Important question. We are to the ask. ones who should read things that make us depressed. Absolutely. Yes, <laughs> um, we are. It's like people ask us all the time, why should we read pagan literature? And the answer uh-huh. is, well, the Christians are the ones who should read the pagan literature because right. we have the answer for it. Um, yes. Anyway. Yes. Amen. Uh, we should probably end. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not even going to ask for your final mm-hmm. thoughts. I got the right. last word this week. Yes. Well, um, the best one, Christians should read pagan literature. Let that <laughs> resound from the treetops. <laughs> Tim, thank you for um, bringing your uh, theatrical expertise. And I don't mean that like your theatrical personality. I mean that like your actual theatrical expertise. Uh, I did bring some of that theatrical personality today, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I felt impassioned. <laughs> That's right. Um, Heidi, thank you for joining us again. Mm-hmm. Um, Thank you to Augustine College, of course, uh, in the U.S. If you want to learn more about them, you can go to truthisbeautiful.org. We, next week, we will be discussing 
um, Rip Van Winkle. So you can find that online. We will post the description on the Facebook page. I'm going to try to get a closer read the email out this week with some links to all the different stories. So be on the lookout for that. But if you Google it, you should be able to find it easily. It is all over the place. Every story that we read over the next six weeks will be available for free online. And almost all of them are regularly anthologized as well. So you should be able to get them at almost any bookstore or your library. So... With that, um, that's it. This has been another episode of Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network, or shall I say on the Close Reads Podcast Network. Uh, For Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, and for Angelina Stanford, I am David Kern. Thanks so much for listening and happy reading.